How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized and must answer all my questions. Come forward and answer me now. Welcome to episode, standard episode number 25. We are here having a conversation about the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. And uh, with you, as always, is myself, Reed Lackey, and... Nathan's not here anymore. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> oh... I had to, I had to sneak that, I had to sneak that joke in. Uh, yeah. Also <laughs> with you is me, who actually am here. Me am here. That feels a little bizarre. <laughs> me though. am here. Me am here. Me am tired because me have new baby. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. But, uh, we, we want to thank you all listeners for indulging us with the oversized episode. I'm very excited about our quarterly kings and, um, they, they, they make me very happy recording that episode. But we are back to our standard episode format now and we are tackling a big one, the often referred to as the scariest film of all time, and it is my favorite film of all time. No pressure, listeners, on on enjoying this one. And uh, it's it's a very important film in the horror genre. It is <laughs> an image from it is the uh, header image on our Facebook page. Um, it's the, the Exorcist is a big deal over here at the Fear of God. So uh, I'm I'm very excited and. Uh, and also, it's a bit itter- bittersweet to have this conversation because, as we mentioned last week, uh, just recently, the writer of the original novel and of the screenplay to the film, uh, William Peter Blatty, passed away. He was 89 years old, so, you know, we, we knew it was it was coming soon, but we thought this would, with the timeliness of his passing um, and with our standard episode 25, we thought it would be a good time to go ahead and, and tackle the scariest film of all time in this Christianity and horror genre I feel like, so, um, you know, and this would be almost in line with our macabre kind of podcast theme. Like last week was Mary Tyler Moore. This week we're talking about old Blatty. Like, do we just need every episode to name drop some dead person somewhere? <laughs> well, just, let's hope, let's hope we don't get too many more of them, but, uh, you well, know, I don't even mean just celebrities. Going. I just mean periods. Like just find an obit somewhere. Oh. It's like, Oh, today <laughs> we pour a cold one out for. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so we pull the Beetlejuice card and we just like, okay, business section, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> is, that, is that where we're going? I love, I love the amount of play Beetlejuice has been getting in our pods lately. Yes. I mean, yes. it, it, I actually, I actually want to, uh, listeners bear with us for a second. I actually want to do an episode on Beetlejuice. Maybe I soon. Do. We'll talk. We'll do it after the Batman Cause, Superman cause really episode though. <laughs> oh my gosh. You had to, things were going so well. Oh, there you do. You mentioned, you mentioned that film in a conversation about my favorite film of all time. I'm not going to feel very good about you. you can, I'm just letting you, you know. You can edit it out if you want. That's my new drinking, that's our new drinking game with the audience is just whenever Nathan <laughs> sneaks in, it's like, um, <laughs> did you watch any of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? No, my wife loves that it's show, very but, funny. but I haven't seen it well, yet. Well, late but. in the first season, they, they introduce this random, uh, it, it's going to make no sense in me describing it. Just know that there's this robot that appears in okay. true Tina Fey writing fashion. Well, in the second, in the <laughs> second season, the robot never, so it features prominently in one episode in the first season. When the second season, it never features in an episode, but it literally, you don't, huh. you don't realize this is happening until a few episodes in. It shows up in every episode in some random background, sort of something or other. <laughs> so that's the new Batman Superman is the Kimmy Schmidt robot. Oh, that's great. You like that? You well, like that diatribe? I do. You're like, I, you're like, I, I just want to get it. to The Exorcist. Well, I, I always want to get to The Exorcist. Any conversation, people will be talking about like, oh, yeah, so so have you seen my kids? And I'll be like, well, you know, this reminds me of The Exorcist. You know, you're, they even made it a joke. Because your kids on, aren't here anymore. Where'd they go? <laughs> <laughs> they even made it a joke over on More Than One Lesson. Tyler kidded me about it in one of our recent episodes. He said, I'm going to beat you to the punch and I'm going to bring up The Exorcist. That's funny. Because <laughs> it feels like, and I even made a joke one time. I said, yeah, no matter what anybody's talking about, they could be talking about animated feature films and i'll be like well you know the exorcist uh it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty pervasive but i do have a story to tell and listeners uh, this will be your first time hearing this. this is the first time i'm saying this publicly uh nathan this is the first time that you're hearing Uh-oh. this uh at all so you get to hear it before anybody and that's appropriate Whoa. but listeners who listen to this episode will hear this for the first time uh well you my dear friend nathan rouse you and and probably you alone are responsible for me recognizing The Exorcist as my favorite film of all time. You do not know this story, and I have never told this story, not for any sort of specific secretive intention, but I'm just realizing as we were, as I was putting together my notes to think about this, I was like, wow, Nathan is actually responsible for me acknowledging this as my favorite film. I feel like we're having like and an so extreme home makeover, like an extreme friendship. No, 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 Move I'll that truck. <laughs> Move that truck. Reveal yeah. the secret. <laughs> what is happening right now? And here I got you a demon possessed child. Oh! <laughs> um, but, so um, so, so the story as briefly as I can make it is you and I, of course, went to college together and, uh, listeners know that already. I had seen The Exorcist for the first time when I was 15 years old, but I saw the edited for TV version of it. So it still had so this. Like, it was like 20 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, you know, there's a lot of this drama going on in the middle. And then, you know, they go up into the bedroom and they don't show you much after they go into that bedroom. I never, never could understand. Uh, but, uh, but no, sincerely, I had seen the film for the first time when I was 15. I liked it a lot. I responded very positively to it. It got me thinking about a lot of things. But at that point, I can't remember really what I would have been citing as my favorite movie. I know for a while, my favorite movie was Dead Poet Society. For another time, my favorite movie was the the Life of Christ film called Jesus of Nazareth, which is still very high up on my list. Um, but we were hanging out. Uh, I forget which class. It was in front of, uh, shout out Keith Cassidy's class. Um, we were We were hanging out. Uh, but waiting for him to arrive and you had just seen it 
And you casually brought it up to me and you said, you know, I just, I just saw The Exorcist. We're hanging out in the Millennium Theater. You were sitting there and you told me, you were like, yeah, I just, I just saw The Exorcist. I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I've seen that. I, I liked it a lot. And you said, you know, and this was the quote that you said to me. You said, you know, if not for that ending, that would be a very Christian movie. And we're going to, we're going to talk about this and unpack this a little bit. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, hmm, yeah, no, you, I, I remember that, but you know, hadn't really, hadn't really thought about that, uh, in that particular context. So it made me go back and revisit the film. And at that point, um, the director's cut was on DVD. So I got a copy of the, I didn't, I don't think I blind bought it. I think I checked it out from the library or rented it or something. Uh, the director's cut of the movie. And as I watched it, and of course, this is the director's cut. And I think you had actually just seen the, the theatrical cut, um, which there is a big difference. Some director's cuts, there's not that big of a difference, but there's like 11 extra minutes on, on this one. And they're, they're all important. But, uh, but you had just seen like the theatrical cut. And when I went back and I watched that director's thing, I thought, this is actually one of my favorite movies. I really, I really respond very strongly to this. It was not long before that moved from me calling it one of my favorite movies to, no, this is one of my, this, this is my favorite movie. This is a very important movie to me. I read the novel after seeing it again. Um, that only further solidified my affection for it. So Nathan, Everybody has you to thank for why I talk about this movie so much. I'm just letting you know. Well, I feel uh, like in true, true I feel like in true your previous favorite movie fashion, you need to right now stand on your chair and say, "Oh, Captain, my Captain," to me. But um, <laughs> you know, like, wow, I didn't know that. What's funny about this yeah. is, um, you know, this was what 16 years ago at a time in which what I would describe as a quote unquote Christian movie was probably very different. So I feel like no, right, I feel right, like very right. na- naive young me was like. Oh man, I, I wish there'd been an altar call after that girl spit that stuff out her mouth. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny because the you know, and I also by the way, I also by the way like to I, I appreciate taking credit for the good things in your life. So you just you just keep that. <laughs> I give it where it's yes. due. I do give yes, it where it's yes. due. Um, yeah, there's I mean, there, there's polarizing opinions about about this film in that you know Billy Graham, Reverend Billy Graham, is quoted as saying that evil is present in the celluloid of the film. Wow. And he was very, uh, very critical of this movie. And yet there's a lot of, of subsets of largely non-religious groups that consider this film Christian propaganda. And they call it that. Um, that this, yeah. And, and so it's like, it's one of those films that is, uh, is immensely powerful and it's undeniably affecting in, I, I, I think it is the kind of film that unless you're not really watching it, it is very challenging to walk away from the film unaffected, like to walk away bored. It's very, very difficult to do that. Now, if you cut it off after 20 minutes, maybe that's possible because there's a lot of just talking in the early stages of it. But once things really begin to get going, it's a very impactful, very affecting story. And it's something that has stayed with me for a very, very long time. I want to give because it's largely the reason that we're Having the episode before we dive into, I want to hear some of your thoughts on, especially your rewatch. I've seen this movie a multitude of and times. It keeps getting funny uh, every I've, single time I see it. <laughs> Perfect. We've already referenced Beetlejuice once. Yeah, okay. but that's what he's talking about, right? <laughs> exactly. See? Yeah. Perfect exactly. in context. Beetlejuice quote. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
We do want to we do want to take a moment uh, before we get into the particulars of the film itself to give a, a mini tribute to uh, to the writer William Peter Blatty, um, who passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's funny; not a lot of people would know that he actually got his start in comedy. Um, he wrote what is largely considered one of the best of the the oddly enough the Pink Panther mystery movies called A Shot in the Dark. Interesting. Um, it's con- yeah, it's considered a legendary comedy, and he co-wrote the. I mean, I thought The Exorcist was hilarious. <laughs> Beetlejuice did too, um, but. Uh, I love it. But, you know, you know, it was interesting. He, uh, he actually was, you know, very successful as a comedy writer, but then he had this idea to do something a bit differently. He had read a story about a boy, uh, who had been possessed. And so he began to do some research and developed this story, which became the novel. And, uh, The Exorcist was a wildly successful novel. It was the most popular and successful horror novel since uh, Rosemary's Baby had been published, which was like a decade earlier. Horror was not always the the sort of hot commodity that it is in the publishing and in the and certainly not in the film world that it that it is now. Um but it was tremendously successful. The film was tremendously successful. It was very popular. And it was interesting because because Blatty really didn't have a lot of output after he wrote The Exorcist. He wrote Two other notable novels around that same time period, one that was called uh, Legion, which is a direct sequel to The Exorcist. We'll mention that in a second. Um, and then he wrote one called Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, which is a very silly sort of title. It was originally called that, and then it was renamed The Ninth Configuration uh, when it was adapted into film, which, by the way... William Peter Blatty has exactly two films that he's directed. Uh, both of them were, you know, The Ninth Configuration and the uh, the film The Exorcist Three, uh, which were based on his books. And, and there was nearly like a 30-year gap uh, between then and his writing. But before he died, uh, he released one novel in 2009 and two in 2010. Uh, all of them are very good. All of them are psychological horror novels that have deeply spiritual undertones. His writing uh, frequently had that. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something that was published just a couple of years ago um, called Finding Peter that was very lovely. It's nonfiction. It's it's a lovely tribute to his son who had passed away and how the death of his son and some of the things that happened in the in the aftermath of the death of his son uh, impacted his faith. And it's a it's a moving tribute to to his son. And it's something that I think listeners should should definitely check out if you're at all interested in William Peter Blatty. I am just uh, saddened that he's gone, and I am, um, uh, you know, he as I said, he's 89, and it's always a bit sad when they when they pass away. But when they reach a certain age, you sort of know that it's that it's inevitable and it is coming. But he's somebody whose writing holds a great deal of meaning for me, and I uh, I will miss him miss him terribly. But he will always and forever be known and his legacy hinges around the scariest film of all time and one of the scariest novels of all time the exorcist nathan read i'm you rewatched here. this uh-huh. you rewatched this and by my understanding you rewatched it late at night with headphones which was stupid I did. my friend like, it was stupid. like i probably started it at 11 p.m and it was the director oh, man. It was the director's cut um oh, so it was longer yeah. right um yeah. So yeah, it started at 11 PM. So it was super late when I finished it and I did watch it on a computer laptop with headphones. It was a very intimate, um, intimate viewing of this film. And about halfway through, I thought, I wish I'd invited someone over to watch this with me. <laughs> Would you say like, I, I actually don't mean this to be critical, like your assessment or the sort of common assessment of this as quote unquote, the scariest movie ever. Would you still say that, like, in in your 
assessment of things. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Here's the thing though, that, that horror films these days, they, they, they've gone in a variety of interesting directions and there've been some masterpieces, uh, written recently. Fear is a very personal thing. And so somebody could say, could come away from this and be like, well, that, that wasn't really scary to me. And I would go, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's probably true. It doesn't scare me. I actually don't, and I'm, I'm saying this sincerely, I don't have anything to contribute to the scary moments, uh, part of our conversation because this film doesn't really frighten me, especially not anymore. Um, so, but when you're talking about, you know, like the scariest films of all time, what it's dealing with. Sure. Is, yeah. is the problem of evil. Right. And it's dealing with the problem of evil in a more direct way than I have ever seen any other film do. And, and so to that end, I would definitely call it among them. It was really interesting because I forget the publication they had, um, you know, occasionally publications will go out and they'll say, oh, you know, what's the scariest films of all time? And they'll contact industry professionals and critics and actors and directors and, and they'll submit their lists. And I remember, and good Lord, I wish I'd known I was going to reference this because I'd look up the, the, uh, reference and get the quoting right. But there was a, they had done sort of a breakdown of what their top 100 scariest films were. And one of their breakdowns were they said, The Exorcist is unbeatable because they said The Exorcist had wound up in the top five, if not top three of more than 70% of wow. people's lists who submitted among the scariest films of all time. So it's a deeply affecting movie. Sure. Fear is is still a very personal thing, but if I were to scratch at why I think, two reasons why I think The Exorcist is still so impactful and still so lingering is one, it is handled without any sensationalism. Sure. It is, and, and, and I say that given the fact that there's some tremendously affecting things that happen on screen. But it is handled with the care of like a documentary filmmaker. And, and Friedkin had had some experience doing documentaries at that time, which is largely why Blatty had pursued him to be the director for this film. And I think part of why is lesser directors have handled possession films in, you know, recent years and over the course of time. And they always feel the need to beef up the material. They feel the need to try to sensationalize it a bit. And The Exorcist does none of that. The Exorcist presents it as directly and as coldly as any other standard story well, that I, you would see. I like, uh, I've got a few other bits and bobs here, but I do find it interesting that the movie doesn't, to my remembrance, doesn't give you a direct, I mean, it's, she's got the Ouija board, but there's no like, yeah. oh, now she's possessed, you know, like, like. Yeah. It's it just sort of happens. Yeah. Um, before we dive too quickly into the, the, the actual text of the movie. Yeah. My, my very first notes here says, haven't watched since GWU, which is our alma mater, Gardner Webb. <laughs> and, uh, who knew? Who knew what a mythological story <laughs> that was for you? I feel like, I feel like it's, a, it's, it's a lost episode, like Jack's tattoos. Like we've, we've known Reed on screen <laughs> for some time and he references the exorcist all the time. And then all of a sudden he's in a cage and we're like, What's this flashback about? Oh, we're going to learn how Reed came to love the exorcist. <laughs> hopefully, the, hopefully listeners found it more interesting than we found Jack's tattoos. <laughs> probably, probably not. Um, <laughs> don't lose your drink there, buddy. Wow. Um, you know, uh, just a few kind of cursory stuff as, as we tend to do. Like I did appreciate on this rewatch. I didn't remember any of the setup. You know, I mean, tradi oh, right. Just right. as you, as you assess a movie like The Exorcist in, in pop culture, well, it's, it's The Exorcist. It's The Exorcism movie. Like, 
those are the images you have of, of uh, Regan, Reagan. I don't know. Reagan. Reagan. Um, of, yeah, of Reagan possessed. You know, these are the images you have of, of, as you alluded to the fear of God sort of banner uh, image. Like there's a lot of story that happens before that. And I found that really enjoyable. Um, yeah. You know, it, yeah. what I simply mean to say that it's, it, it, it takes its time. It earns where it goes is what I think I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I really like that the angle is not a religious angle. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think about yes. Emily Rose, which we covered, you know, a couple months ago. And, and I, I, there's a lot to like about the exorcism of Emily Rose, but the characters in that story are religious people already. So, so it's a real, just clean cut. We're going to go straight for an exorcism story. Whereas with this, mm-hmm. there's nothing religious about these people at all for good or ill. It, it just, it's not even a part of the story. Um, and so it's interesting that it, yeah. that it takes that approach. Here's a fun question for you. What, and you, I'll give you a chance to think about it if you need it. And I'll, I'll reference mine. What is a favorite pop culture exorcist reference? Do you have one? Do you, can you like, can you, can you roll a dex? Yes. Uh, it's, it's right. It's right there. It's immediate. In okay. my mind. <laughs> what yeah, is it? What is immediate it? in my mind? Um, it's a, it, I believe it was either now I, I, I say that it's immediate in my mind. Oh. I know that the I know that the comedian was Richard Pryor, mm. and what I cannot remember is whether it was one of his stand-up bits, one of his individual stand-up bits, or if it was in uh, like a Saturday Night Live sure. where he was hosting or something like that. I, I I can't remember the context for where this was. I actually I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say that it was one of his stand-up bits, but he did a bit about The Exorcist, and he did a bit about what it would have been like if if it had been a black priest <laughs> confronting The Exorcist. <laughs> And it, it's, it's pretty brilliant, but my favorite moment is, is when the demonic girl says to him, your mother's in here with us. And he goes, what'd you say about my mom? <laughs> <laughs> but that is, uh, I'm not doing the bit by any means justice, but if you can seek out Richard Pryor's exorcist bit, that is my favorite pop cultural reference to the exorcist that I've ever seen. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Uh, the only one I could think of in the immediate was in Austin Powers, uh, Dr. Evil's chair starts his automated chair starts swiveling uncontrollably and he gets up in it and he goes i i need a young priest and an old priest i need a young priest and an old priest the power of christ compels you (laughs) (laughs) that's a good one that's a good one i had forgotten that one but that's a good one oh Oh, very funny show me another very funny um (laughs) so oh okay so so this is not a funny pop culture bit but well don't share it then Listen, so um, listeners may know, may or may not know, and I referenced it a few episodes ago, though I'm remiss to remember when, uh, that there's now a TV show of The Exorcist. Right. So this is interesting. Spoilers, everyone, for the TV show The Exorcist. There is a, uh, uh, this is either going to drive you to want to see the show or it is going to spoil something big about the show. So if you're interested in the show already and don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead like a minute. But when the show begins in the pilot, they reference the events of this film in a newspaper clipping where it's it's referenced. And so I thought that was neat because I was like, oh, that's great because this is taking place in the same universe as those original events. All different characters, um, you know, it's happening to a different family and the, the it's well written and the, the priest characters are interesting. And so it's going right along midway through the first season. Big reveal. It, a character who was called something entirely different and I never saw it coming is revealed to be Reagan McNeil. 
Oh wow! And she had changed her name, changed her name, and gone away, and everything. And when things begin to come to a head, and it's like, why is this happening? She confesses to somebody. She's like, this is happening because of me. I can't get away from it. She said, my real name is Reagan McNeil, and I'm like, oh my gosh! So it is. It is in fact a direct sequel to this original film, and a, a pretty darn good one. I mean, it's television, um, and it actually falls prey to some of that sensationalism that I mentioned earlier. But but it was it was pretty good, and I had to mention anybody that. anybody working in the TV field right now just took severe umbrage at you being like it is television. <laughs> well, I mean that it's longer I format, know, so I'm they don't you, you know. So it's it's yeah, you, guys, you get it. Come on, um, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, back to you. Yeah, oh, I, I love it when people say that. Um, another just fun, you know. We our, our typical format is just cursory stuff and then scary stuff and then themes. This fits neither scary nor themes, but I love who I call the movie man in this movie, and that's that's this detective who feels oh yeah who feels like he's from a different movie and he just kind of yeah, wanders yeah. in to early in the film and he's with Damien right and he's yeah, like about midway through the film yeah he's yeah. like oh you're a priest do you like to go to the movies. I like I like to go to the movies. I got free I got free passes. Do you want to go to the movies with yep. me? And it feels real out of the blue when it happens. But I, I mean, right, hear me. I'm right. being tongue in cheek. You know, it feels kind of friendly and nice and a, a, a fun bit character bit. Oh sure, sure. But then it's hysterical at the end. Father Dyer, who has just sort of given last rites to spoiler alert to Father Damien, yeah. and and what a bitter end that was. An old movie man wanders in. <laughs> He's like, well, hey, you're a priest. I'm, a, I'm a movie, I'm a movie man. Like, do you like the movies? <laughs> do you like? God? And that's directly, that's directly from the book. Really? That's that 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 is taken directly from the book. Yeah. Well, so here's here's interesting. Two two notes about that, and we should probably clarify, listeners, if you have only ever seen the theatrical cut of this film, there's a couple of things that I know will come up that you will probably not have any idea what we're talking about because the because unlike other director's cuts that I've seen, like this, the director's cut of The Exorcist, like I said, adds 11 minutes of footage and all of it is thematically important, um, in my opinion. But the moment that you're referencing with, with Kinderman talking to Father Dyer at the end is not in the original movie. And it's, it's direct from the book and it is intended to sort of come in and show everyone that life is moving on and that, sure. and that things are progressing yeah, yeah, to yeah. this sort of, sort of normal place. But what's interesting about that is that Exorcist 3, which was directed by William Peter Blatty and based on his novel called Legion, is about that detective. It, that it's detective just, is the main character in that story. He's just trying to get to, he's and all just he does trying to get a movie, buddy. <laughs> yeah, movie. that's all he does is go to the movies all the Everybody time. he asks just ends up embroiled in some supernatural hullabaloo. And he's like, <laughs> come on, y'all. I just want to go catch a movie but, picture show. But if, if anybody has, I will say this, if anybody has any interest in seeing The Exorcist 3, I do recommend it, but it's very psychological it's 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 a lot more talky and it's wrestling with themes there's scary things in it in fact it has one of the most legendary scary moments uh one of the most legendary jump scares in all of cinema history and i'm not being hyperbolic when i say that like if people talk about greatest jump scares in any film it is likely that in the top 10 is going to be a a moment in exorcist 3 that will make you jump probably leap right off of your chair but uh but yeah, you know, the detective is interesting because one of the things, see, I'm going to have to just sort of bounce back to you a few times because 
Virtually everything that I would have to say about this film is related to theme. So I want you to have as much freedom as you want to to, to highlight moments that you liked or scary moments that you liked or, or, or anything like that. Before oh, we'll we be here. That. We'll be here all night or all day, <laughs> depending on when you listen to this. I love that the doctor who is smoking in his office, uh, you know, this is such a 70s thing. It's like, it really oh, is. there's something off base with your kid. Let's give him Ritalin. You know, it's so like, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll yeah. do that. Um, I've said pretty much all of my cursory stupid stuff. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned nothing scaring you and, you know, you, you just have the fortitude of a, I don't know what, I don't know how to finish that sentence. Um, uh, in terms of scary things for me, I think the primary couple are the recurring image of the face. Uh, oh, I mean, yes. That's definitely scary. Unrelated to the demonic, though, well, the supernaturally demonic, though it definitely feels demonic, the old mentally ill women accosting Father Damien in the mental hospital, that, that's pretty freaky. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, all the possession stuff is pretty freaky, but the neck procedure at the hospital kind of is a bit, oh, God, that's terrible. That that yeah that well, would probably top my list. Like if I were to jot down, well, clearly it just did. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, like even all the possession stuff, that might actually rival those for scary moment. That's disgusting. Well, what's interesting about that is that the film developed a reputation in its theatrical showings of people fainting, vomiting, running out of the theater, and it developed a reputation of that. People assume that that's because of all the exorcism stuff at the end. It was that medical procedure that did most of oh, it. Oh wow. Like, yeah, that like the people were having an adverse reaction to how realistic it all looked. And even in interviews, some of the cast members and fans of the movie say that when that scene comes, they, they just look, they just kind of look down sure. for a few minutes Hello. until it passes. Cause it's, it's brutal to watch. It's absolutely gruesome to watch. And I think it's, it's interesting. This film we were talking earlier about, we mentioned earlier that it has an almost documentary flavor to it. The verisimilitude of what's happening makes the outrageousness of the possession stuff all the more frightening because it's handled with the same care. Like, you see a, a, a medical procedure like that handled in great detail and to great extent, and other people, lesser filmmakers, might have been like, we don't need to waste time with that. People came here to see a possession. But what that does is that establishes that the world you're living in is a real one. Right. And right. it establishes that everything that you're seeing is really happening. And so then when it gets to stuff flying around the room, when it gets to the bed shaking, when it gets to the more outrageous moments, that's all really happening. And the film is brilliant in that it sets you up that way to recognize everything as reality. So then you see this this horrific possession stuff also as reality, which is why I think so many people have a, a, a very intense, frightening response. Hold to. that thought. I want to come to that. I'll come back to that. But. Um, yeah, and I, I, if you recall, you know, talk about verisimilitude, I had texted you while watching it that, and this may sound ridiculous to people who've actually watched this, and maybe this is just my desensitized 2017 sort of sensibilities, but the movie doesn't understand I, I, the nuance here. The movie doesn't feel gratuitous. Like, it's a pretty economical oh, yeah, I agree. film. Like, a thing will happen. It does, uh, it doesn't spoon feed you. Like, right. um, I'm thinking specifically of the sequences at the doctor's office when Regan starts acting out and you're kind of right. like, right. okay. Oh, or, you know, we're so not used to a movie referencing a thing with characters we know that we didn't actually witness. 
You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And there's right. a scene right. specifically right. where the doctor is talking. Oh, that's it. It's when the doctor's talking to the mom and is citing a profanity outburst, a profane outburst, right. which you don't as a right. viewer actually see. And, right. you know, we're so indoctrinated to this type of storytelling where we're like, whatever, that didn't happen. But, but no, it, it did. You know, it's just, it did. It's right. just sort right. of a style of the film that you are not privy to every single thing that's happening to these people, which is pretty uncommon. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it, and I'll even admit that some of it, I was, when I was rewatching it to prepare for this again, and just because I, any, I take any excuse to rewatch the exorcist that I can. Um, but the thing that stuck out to me is there are several story beats, several narrative and character beats that I, I wouldn't blame audiences if they missed the first time around, like certain connective tissue and certain things that are happening. Like say, for instance, with the director, Burke Dennings, there's certain things with his character that are passed by so quickly and so mutedly that I wouldn't blame audiences if they if they missed it the first time around or if even still with subsequent viewings that they're like, wait, what happened with that? And it's interesting to me because I think the film really puts a lot of trust in its audience. It, it puts a lot of of faith in them to pay attention and I think it also is comfortable, is extremely comfortable with not spelling everything out for Okay, them. well, in the spirit of that, and let this, if, if you're comfortable with this, let this be the last thing pre-theme, and then we'll just jump into this, because sure, sure. I know you're yeah. chomping at the bit, little reread. Um, <laughs> for the life of me, even at this moment, although you'll probably illuminate it for me, uh, I, bear in mind, I did watch this at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, it had been 15 years since the last viewing or more. Um, I, I don't. I don't at the moment understand the Saudi Arabia stuff. Oh, okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'll understand. Uh, I'll give you partially my interpretation of that. That's basically, uh, so when we open, uh, the opening shot, of course, is of the McNeil, the McNeil home. Um, but then it cuts almost immediately to Iraq and we see this old priest who is digging and discovers this statue in the dirt. Now, what we don't realize until much later, and audiences would not at all be be blamed, in my opinion, for forgetting this piece of information by the time you get to uh, when it's actually revealed. But um, we later discover that this old man is a priest who has somewhat recently faced an exorcism battle and had fought for many months to deliver someone from a demon. The statue that he uncovers is the statue representing that demon. And so when he sees it on the dig, he begins to know I'm going to have to be prepared because this fight is coming after me again. Hmm. And and I wasn't done with it in in the past. Um, so the only way that an audience would maybe necessarily pick up on that initially is that we see him go through all of this in Iraq and we see that he has a bad heart, that he takes heart medication. We see that everywhere there are signs and symbols of conflict and pressure there's a uh you know the the uh, blacksmith is sitting there and when the blacksmith looks up he's got a he's blind in one eye so it very clearly gives this distinction of a black eye and a white eye like right there in that moment so those those that conflict is present the dogs in the distance are growling and barking and then there's that shot this iconic shot of the priest, Father Marin, staring down a statue right. of that, that statue is representing, uh, the demon Pazazu. So he's staring down that statue and he just knows I'm about to enter into this conflict. I don't know when it's going to come calling for me. I don't know where or, ho- or how it's going to look, 
but I'm being drawn into this conflict again. So then you go through all of the McNeil stuff, and you see all of the possession stuff, and then it's not until they're about to call an exorcist to assist Damien Karras that they're like, what about Lancaster Marin? He's had a little bit of experience recently. Isn't he over in Iraq? Well, yeah, but now he's back, and he's just working on a book. And when they go to deliver, it's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. When they go to deliver the telegram to Marin that will eventually send him to the McNeil home to perform the exorcism, he doesn't even open it, doesn't even read it. He looks at it, pauses for a moment, and then just pockets it and begins to walk up back up the hill. And he just knows. He just knows what's in it because when he was in Iraq, he knew this conflict was coming. So, um, is, again, is that's... some of what you're describing in terms of unpacking the Iraq stuff, is that from the book? So a lot of it's present in the book. Okay. A lot of it's I mean, more more clear in the book than than yeah. the film would even necessarily give to right. you. So yeah, and that and that and that's again that speaks to I, I don't if people miss things about this film, this film is in many ways restrained and in many ways subtle. In many ways it's not in other places, but uh there's a lot of connective tissue that that I would certainly understand uh people not catching hold of through merely one or even a couple of viewings. But I think that's part of the brilliance of the film. I mean, the exorcist of the title is Father Marin. Sure. And he's in exactly two scenes, you know. Right. But but it is it is pretty powerful to think about his character and to think about about exactly what his character's involvement in this story means. Now in um, the book, is he is he as <clears throat> so you just made the reference that Marin is in the beginning and the end. Does he get mm-hmm. weaved or is he woven through other parts of the book or is it similar structured? Nope. It's exactly that he shows up at the very beginning and he shows up at the very end. And that is that is it. He bookends the story. So the so the novel opens with a prologue in Iraq, which is what we see played out in the film, and then it ends with him, you know, with with those well, with it ends Man. with that moment with the detective. Yeah, with Movie Man. But but, you know, Father Marin doesn't show up again until the actual right, exorcism. Right. Which I still find I'm I, I can't even totally tell you why, but I find that choice brilliant. That he's just, he's there in the beginning, and then he's not referenced again until he's called in to come and try to rescue this girl. And I don't know why, but from a storytelling perspective and from a structure perspective, I adore that. Yeah. I just I just love it. Well, it um, is your favorite movie of all be, time, thanks to me. It is. There's not much I don't love about this. <laughs> Thank you, again. <laughs> um but let's let's go ahead and 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 spend a little bit of time on yeah. on some let's theme. And there's like we said with the witch and it's triply more so true of the exorcist. We could do a commentary on so many things that that are going on in this film. I'll I'll highlight a couple of things that I think I just specifically wanted to touch on and I've I've written about this film. I've talked about this film elsewhere. I might link to uh to the write-up that I did uh, for more than one lesson on our Facebook page, um, just because I articulated a lot of these thoughts there as well. But for me, I've always seen this film as dealing directly with the problem of evil and the differing perspectives that you could have in struggling to come to terms with the problem of evil. And I feel like, several viewings in, I feel like virtually every perspective is represented somewhere in the film. You have the overt diehard, faithful believer perspective in Father Marin the Exorcist. But you also have the mother who is an atheist and isn't quite sure what's going on and isn't quite sure how to make sense of what's happening. She just feels helpless and just wants this to change and wants this to stop. You also have the doctors and the psychiatrists who are pure science 
well, we still think, you know, the temporal lobe and, and things that are, that are clearly supernatural that they see, like, well, yeah, maybe her brain is doing this somehow, making records fly across the room and making entire dressers shift space in the room, but they're attacking it with pure science. And then you have Movie Man, who, uh, you know, I'm not going to call him, but his name's Kinderman. Uh, Detective, Detective Kinderman is, He's pure deductive reasoning. He's just trying to logically get to the bottom of what's taking place here in a very, at times, almost a kind of a Columbo fashion. And then we'll spend a lot of time talking about him, I'm sure. But then you have Damien Karras, who is the anchor to the entire film. And he is a person of faith, but also a tremendous, carries a tremendous amount of doubt. And he's somebody that I think is supposed to be the surrogate for the audience in the moment, uh, because he is, he is quasi a believer, but at the same time, he is very skeptical of this, of, of exorcism as a procedure and is not quite sure what to do. Even, even when he's building up to trying to build a case for whether or not they should perform an exorcism. And then especially when they get in and actually perform the exorcism, he carries with him a lot of doubt yeah. in, in, in every sort of intonation that he gives. And so it's interesting to look at all of the different perspectives and think that if you're trying to come to terms with the problem of evil and how we should confront it and how we should cope with it, I think The Exorcist is brilliant in that, in, in the fact that it subtly represents a variety of different responses to that problem. And I think does so, I think, fairly to sure. a lot of these different representatives. Well, I feel like you've, I mean, clearly, uh, I feel like you've, you've sold me on watching it again. And I think I want to go do that now. Ah. You know, it's funny. Um, God bless you. <laughs> right. Um, he does. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm about to, uh, point out a revelation here. You know, I'm making fun of old movie man and because he's got a little bit of a wistfulness about him. And you just saying his name out loud made me go check this before I said it. So his name's Kinderman. Do you know what Kinder means? Uh, child. Child, child, yes. child man, like kindergarten, child man, yeah, kinderman. Oh, that's interesting, and that's new. That's I had never made that See, connection. This is what before. I'm here for, Reed. That's exactly what I'm here mean. to help you know what your favorite movie of all time ever is, and to further <laughs> illuminate its many riches. That's true. Um, the kinderman or the kinder yeah. man. See, we can do a whole or the kinder. Yeah, we can do a whole thesis on movie man. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, well, it's, it's true. They're, well, the names are deliberate. Right. Like, that's what like I'm saying. The, yeah. you, uh, you know, we, we, we could get to perhaps some silly degrees with that, but, you know, just, uh, the, the name, the name Karis, obviously, I, it's a, I think, uh, is a, probably a, a German name, but it, uh, but it definitely resonates with like, you know, you hear it, you think of care. Oh, man. There's, there's so much about this film that, that I think it does. <laughs> Here the uh, the loaded word that I'm about to use rewards further viewings because it's also a very punishing film in 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 a variety of ways. Sure. But I will I will also say and again to to tribute to William Peter Blatty, um, the the book as a novel does wonders for understanding what you're seeing in the movie. I, I, um, I promise I won't do this with all these names, but you you made me think of this. So Karis. I am just now looking up, uh, is of Norse Viking origins and is a word, oh. a word for an area of dry land in a marsh. Ooh, see, and that's like that? definitely indicative. Yeah. Indicative of the, you know, uh, of a place of doubt. Right. Right. Uh, amidst a position of faith. 
You know, what's interesting about that, and this is something that Friedkin had pointed out in one of his commentaries, that every single time you see Damien Karras, except for a couple of scenes at the end, every single time you see him, he's rising. He's coming upstairs or he's rising up into frame. Um, and uh, the only times that that's not true are when he's coming down the steps to rush back to prepare for the exorcism and when he throws himself out the window and falls down right. the steps at the end. Um, and it's it, it's intentional. There's a lot of visual metaphors in the film uh, as much as there are narrative ones. But, you know, it's I think the thing that speaks to me so profoundly in the film is evil is not... Though we as faithful believers do and would express, do believe that evil has been defeated, it has not gone away. And it's something that we continually have to deal with as we're looking at the world around us, as we're seeing what even sometimes our fellow believers are doing and are saying, and what's happening to people who are categorically godless. And I say that not as an insult, but like they, they hold no, right. uh, no belief in a moral standard, no belief in a, uh, uh, they're just, they're, they're reprobates slaughtering human beings and, and, and just destroying, uh, entire populations and genocide. And like, like we see these things that we would categorize as evil. And it can be difficult sometimes to hold a posture of faith. And what is the ultimate underlying problem when people say they have difficulty believing in God? Well, look at all the evil in the world. Right. Look right. at all of the things that are that are going on. And it's interesting because William Peter Blatty has said on more than one occasion and even infused it into a couple of his other scripts that he never really understood the argument of why, if you say, like, how can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? He would usually retort with, well, if there's not one, then how do you account for all the good? Right, right. Like, sincerely... Right. Uh, you, the, the the logic falls apart when you say like, well, how how can there be a god with all of this this other thing? And it's like, well, then how do you account for the good things if there's not one? And it's interesting because this film is about to hear William Friedkin say it. It's about the mystery of faith and what faith does, and I think in some ways what it doesn't do. Because the original cut of The Exorcist, there's a lot of people who walked away thinking that the devil won that fight, and that despite the fact that the little girl was released. That because both of the priests died, that the devil was the stronger sure, sure. force in in that feeling. And I've had conversations with people who they find the film troubling because in their understanding of the power of Jesus Christ, the priests should have walked in, invoked the name of Jesus, and the demon flee, and the demon just leave. But he he doesn't in this in this film. Uh, in this film, they have an extended twenty five minute battle with this thing that neither of the priests survive. <laughs> So it's something that can get complicated when you're trying to to say like well what is this film saying about faith and the and the and confronting evil. Right. I don't know. I mean I I I I'm at risk in this episode. I can't remember if I said this to you before we started recording or if I said this actually on mic. I'm at risk of dominating this conversation because this film uh uh enters my thoughts uh, frequently as could be I could be teased for and and perhaps uh, recognized for but I, I don't I, I want to hear some of your thoughts about it some of what you gleaned from recent viewings of it because I could go all over the map and I could dominate the whole rest of our conversation if we're if I'm not intentionally like staring back so I want to hear your thoughts <laughs> oh you know I mean you you gave me a grand uh, a grand gift in in awarding me position in your life of of 
you know, helping you understand what's your favorite movie of all time forever. So you talk all you want, man. Um, I'll just be here. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a few like specific themes that, that did kind of jump out at me and, you know, we can, we can spend as much or as little time on these as we, as we want or need to, but like, I'm, I'm hesitant I'm hesitant for certain reasons to introduce this one per se, just because of certain biases that are not worth going into here. But I think Karis is an interesting figure and, and there's a theme that's sort of happening in this movie. And what I wrote down is the wariness of ministering and the need, the mm. need for self care, you know, oh, like, wow. yeah. mm-hmm. like Karis is done. I mean, mm-hmm. w- whether you're talking exorcism or anything, right. I mean, he's, he's yeah. kind of, he's at the end of yeah, the He's kind of done. Not, and I don't think you're saying this, not at the end of his rope, like, what is my will to live? You know, uh. Um, no, just, no, but he says, he, he says he feels like he's lost his faith. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. definitely at the end of his faith rope. Yeah. Um, and it does sort of put me in mind to the notion of how people who minister and, and, and we who believe well Judeo Christianity understand the priesthood of all believers, meaning you don't have to, wear a clerical collar to be a minister, you know, going around and doing good for people you encounter is ministering, but there is a sense in which you also have to seek out and, and apply a level of self care in order to be able to continue that work. And, and it's clear sort of in the story that Karis has not done that. Something I want to spend some time on and, and maybe you can illuminate, you know, does, does this critical conversation about this movie address this? Um, it was interesting to me that in this film, I don't know how this applies in the book, but what I wrote down is, isn't it interesting that sexuality is the weapon of perversion? Like, there are means that when we think about evil, you know, like murder and, and, and killing and violence, on a certain level, is this entity violent? Yeah. But, but not in this like slaughterous way. Right, right. Pretty much the expressions you see from it are, are sexual in nature. It's, yes, it's a lot profanities of right. to the priests. You know, mm-hmm. what the things she, she literally verbalizes to them are, are grotesquely sexual. Um, right, it's her, it's right. her actions with the crucifix. It's her actions with Reagan's mom. Like this is all right. extremely, sexual stuff and you could make a you you know a certain perhaps less discerning person could look at this and be like oh this is just you know they might use a word as strong as pornographic but you know just this this real vile sexuality that's that's sort of literally demonic in this case but but then something that really stood out to me is in light of all of that is it dire at the end reagan kisses him on the cheek Yes, Father Dyer. Mm-hmm. After she sees the the collar, yeah. And I thought, yeah. what a beautiful touch. Yeah, because also not in the original. Really, that's that's oh, okay. new to the director's cut. Yeah, mm-hmm. because you've seen this entity just scrape the bottom of the human barrel in terms of sexual expression. It is grotesque and it is perverse. And then what does a restored Reagan do? She commits a an act of tenderness. And, mm-hmm. and a kiss is of itself sensual, though I'm not at all applying that to that dynamic. But I am saying it's a tender act of physical intimacy. Yes. I, I yes. don't know. I just thought that was a really powerful 
illustration of restoration. Um, yeah, I, I, I no, I, I definitely resound with that. And it's interesting because that's not a theme that I've, that I've thought about in much depth, but that's, as you were talking, I was going to introduce the word intimacy, um, which, which then you later did. But I was thinking about that, that it, it, it is, it's, it goes beyond just sexuality and more to a distortion of intimacy right. and using, using sexual language and using, uh, in one point, a horrific, uh, very sexual in nature, perverted thing. And that scene, particularly, if there's any scene, you know, we talked about the bone tomahawk scene, as it were. Well, Exorcist has quite a few of them. But if there's any scene that I could really see faithful believers going, man, how did you make it past this scene in the movie? It is that crucifix right. scene. Uh, I'm not going to describe it. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. That uh, there's there's a scene where she does something very profane with a crucifix. And William Peter Blatty has talked at length about that scene in, in particular. And he said that scene is in there because he needed something. The mother is, is an atheist. And so she's very skeptical. She even says when they introduce the idea from a psychological perspective of an exorcism, she says, you want me to take my daughter to a witch doctor? That's what you want? And so he needed something from a narrative perspective, needed something that would not only be shocking enough to make her desperate, but be deliberately religious, deliberately profane in what was happening that would drive her into the arms of the church. And it's interesting because, yeah, I love that moment that you referenced at the end when Reagan, they've established, does not remember anything. Right. She does not remember anything of the entire ordeal. But I love Linda Blair is just standing there in that moment, and she is she's looking at it, and she sees the collar. And when she sees the collar... It evokes this this knowledge, something deeper than her right, own memory. Right. It evokes something that this person came to help me. Maybe not this individual, but but I I received help at this point from you know from this person. And yeah, you're right. Her response is is an intimate and tender response, and one that is not in the slightest way perverted, but is instead sweet and I would say to a degree holy. Um, in its in its innocence. Well, and we we talked about this some with it follows. Like you know there there is a there is a theology of of the body. You know that that you look at the the proceedings of what happening of what happens in the Exorcist, and her physical self is abused. You know, right? It, it is it yeah. is it is abused. It is tormented, and and it is it is separate. Uh, yeah, from from her consciousness, from her personhood, and there's I don't know. Like on on the one hand, someone might be like, "Well, that's a really odd thing to pull out," but the the severity of the language that the demon uses is so specific. That's what stood out to me. Like it's not yes, it's yeah. not like I'm gonna kill your nephew off somewhere with a with a hammer. Like it's it's not that. Right. It's not discussions and de declarations of just pure violence. It is sexual violence. Right. And very specific in that regard. And so, yeah, I found that really powerful. That moment that we keep coming back to of her kissing him on the cheek because you have you've just shown us what a perversion of the body does and 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 looks like, and then you've shown us what an intimacy of body looks like. And it's really, you know, I don't know. Yes. It was just really powerful, really tender moment um, that really kind of spoke to me. 
Um, I think the, the, the very last thing I would sort of have to say in terms of something that really stood out to me, and it was really just writing the quote down. I really don't have anything text wise to unpack here uh, other than I just found this powerful and it references some ideas you were hinting at earlier where Marin says to Karis clearly before both of them have passed, he says, I think the point is to make us despair, to reject mm-hmm. the possibility that God could love us. And I mean, yes. and you and I sort of brushed up against this with Bone Tomahawk. Isn't that, isn't that the effect that the creeping nature of a dark world has on us, period? It's, yeah. it's trying to make us despair. These, these powers and principalities, these forces of darkness that sometimes can feel arrayed and overwhelmed against us, their point is to make us despair, to encourage us to reject the possibility that God could love us. Uh, I don't know. That just really yeah. stood out to me. Well, and I, I tell you, I have, I have one sort of melded theme that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna bring up here in response to what you've just brought up. And this, this will maybe we be with a, an eye towards winding down. We already abused our listeners with a, an hour and a half <laughs> episode, uh, last week. So we're, so we're gonna try to keep this a little tighter, but I will say this. So in response to your, that moment was not in the original. That, of course, was added for the director. Are you talking about the kiss or said, the quote? The quote. Okay. The quote that you said, uh, you know, the, the point is to make us despair, uh, to make us reject the possibility that God could love us. I think that's vital to understanding what's happening in the film. And it's something that, you know, we, we, we wrestle with the problem of evil and we have a variety of different responses or ways that we try to cope or ways that we try to confront that. Um, but when we wonder, well, why, what is the point? Why this little girl? People ask all the time, why me? Why this? Why that? This demon, through this little girl, attacks everything. It attacks her relationship with her mother. It attacks the psychology of the people who come and try to approach it with medical science. It attacks that. Damien is racked with guilt over his mother, and it attacks that, and it hones in on that. Something that's not as apparent in the book, or in, in the movie, but it's more apparent in the, in the book, um, it attacks Marin, and it accuses Marin of saying, you don't really care about this girl. You've just made this a contest between us. And so if you win, this is just a matter of pride for you. So, And there's a, a haunting line in the book that is not in the film. But when Marin first goes into the room to see the demon, this is in the book, uh, the demon looks at Marin and says, this time you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it, it just, it's just assaultive. And it just is terribly, terribly combative against everything that these people would fundamentally hold as fact and truth. And this demon undermines it. And I think the point, I think Marin's right. I think the point is, if if none of what I hold true is actually true, then there's no reason for me to keep going. And there's no reason for me to press on. And we ultimately reject our loveliness. We ultimately reject, even if we are not lovely, and even if we look at all the factual evidence to the contrary that we, you know, that we would consider for ourselves to be beautiful or lovely or lovable, we reject the idea that God could love us because of what we've done or what we've thought or what we've felt or what has happened to us. And we, we reject and deny that possibility. One of the most powerful moments to me in the film is one of its most subtle and tender scenes. And I'm going to express this and then I'm going to say something and then we'll, we'll probably be able to just wind it down. Damien Karras is confronted by the demon with the fact of his mother, and he loses it. And there's a moment where he loses it to pieces, and Father Marin walks in at that point, and Father Marin just tells him, get out, leave. 
you know, and in the moment it could be seen as a bit harsh or critical, but he, he, he really is just clearing sure, the, sure. the battleground, you know, like leave, go. And then when Marin kneels down, that's the last time we see him alive. When he kneels down, he looks around at the room. And I remember noting, uh, a couple of times when I've seen the film, I remember noting like, wow, he knows he's about to die. He knows it's it, in all likelihood he's about to die. So he's just taking in his surroundings as he wages this sort of final battle, as it were. But the moment that I'm really talking about is when Damien Karras, in utter despair, wanders down to the room, wanders downstairs, and he's sitting there, his head slumped. He's lost in grief and guilt and helplessness and hopelessness. But Chris asks, uh, the, the, Chris is the mother. She comes in and she asks and she says, is my daughter going to die? Is she going to die? And he looks up at her and you see, I mean, Jason Miller is a very, very accomplished actor in this moment. You see so many things wash over him in that. And what that moment speaks to me is when he looks up and when she says, is my daughter going to die? The subtext that I read from that film is it all comes crashing in. Oh, I, I bought the lie. This isn't about me at all. Yeah. That, that, that th- this has nothing to do with me. This is about this little girl. And so when she says, is my daughter going to die? He looks up at her very confidently and says, no, she's not going to die. And then what does he do? He marches back up the stairs, and that's the moment when he discovers Father Marin has passed away, and he exercises the demon, albeit in an unconventional manner, but he exercises the demon, and I have a couple of comments about that. But one thing that I wrote down that I believe was first mentioned in a a devotional book, of an ancient devotional book by this point called My Utmost for His Highest, Um, but it was a common phrase. I think I read it first there, but I don't know if it was articulated quite this way. But what I wrote down is self-pity is satanic. And it was one of those things where I began to to reflect on this idea that when we get so absorbed with ourselves and when we get so caught up in woe is me, grief is me, my problems are the ultimate problems, my problems are the worst things that could ever happen. And I'm, and and. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should not give attention to our own needs as valuable and vital self-care. and that they, right. that they, right. that self care. Yeah. Self care is still, is still dramatically important. But when you get lost in self pity right. to where you're beating up on yourself and demanding attention or, or pity from other people, I think that is, and, and I, I, I know it was a bold statement, but I think that is a, that's the devil's got you where he wants you when you sure, are absorbed sure, of sure. self. When you are captivated of self, and then when when she comes in and just says, "Is my daughter going to die?" What breaks off of Father Karras in that moment is just profound to me. And we we mentioned earlier, I said at one point, you know, evil. We believe evil is defeated, but evil has not gone away. Evil has not just dissolved, and it has not just disappeared. But I, what I love about this film is, I love that the defeat of evil in this film is not easy. I love that it doesn't just vanish with some magic formula or magic set of superstitious words, even though there is a ritual to the exorcism, and I'm not devaluing that, but it doesn't just dissipate by that. What it does ultimately dissipate with is when he says, take me, take me instead. And what I find, what I personally find one of the reasons why The Exorcist is one of my favorite films is it's one of the very few films that I've seen so powerfully illustrate that what undermines the power of evil is self-sacrifice. Sure. What sure. undermines the hold that the devil had for forever is not greater control, is not greater understanding. It is take me instead. And there is at least one example 
that we have scripturally where evil, ultimate evil, was not defeated by the wave of a hand, by the recitation of scripture. It was defeated, ultimately, we believe, by Christ laying down his life, right. by uttering not a word, sure. but by by giving of himself and emptying of himself and therefore undermining the power of evil ultimately in, in that moment. And I know I'm getting a little theologically heavy to make a statement like that, but I think it's vital for us to remember because we have a lot of evil things going on in the world right now. Right. We see it well, from people and, who profess faith yeah. and people who don't. Um, well, before, what well just say? before you, you know, I feel like there was an episode uh, about a dozen ago where, was it Unfriended, where you suddenly went to the Garden of Eden? It's like, well, it's like the ultimate card. I can't really trump that one. But Oh, it follows. Right, oh, yeah, it follows. Yeah. Uh, and then in this one, you're like, oh, it's all about Jesus. You're like, well, I can't really top that, you know, so how am I supposed to offer it? <laughs> but before you went there, yes, I mean, the exact same idea. I think, you know, I think about Karis in self-pity, like, thinking back to your statement from earlier about people perceiving the possibility of does the evil win in this one? It's like, well, I guess that depends on what you consider orthodox faith and Judeo-Christian faith, because yeah. there is a yeah. way to read that I think is faithful to the spirit of the text that says you will lose your life to gain it. And yes. you know that, that your ability to put yourself in harm's way on someone else's behalf is an utmost act of faith. Um, yes. You know, I, I had this thought recently uh, that that's like this, that, that may resonate with this and, and may wind us towards home. I don't know. And it was just, but it was about this notion, you know, and, and in this story, the exorcist, the perception and the reading of does evil win in the end? It's like, well, how I understand faith in, let me rephrase that. How I understand following Jesus, and those can be two distinct things, is you will be called to bend further than you ever thought possible. Yes. And you may be called to actually break under that bending, but love will always catch you. And, mm. and, and, and that's faith in Jesus. You know, like that's, yes. that, that's, that's the game. Like there's no, nuancing it there's no but what about my safety there's no but what about my family's mm -hmm. safety there's no but what about the invading hordes it's just well you put one foot in front of the other and you 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 know out of a pursuit of righteousness that is jesus you bend as far as you can and you may still break <laughs> like there, there's yeah. there's no there's no there's no small print that says, you know, the, the bending won't result in a break, but right. the, the, the large print says love is still there for you. And, and even in the breaking, even for a Karis who at the top of the story expresses a loss of faith at the end summons what faith remains in him to perform this last great act, you know? Oh, um, unquestionably, yeah. unquestionably. Uh, and I, I love the way you phrased that. And I'll say, I'll say two things, uh, very quickly and then we can, we can wrap up the episode. The, so one thing that I wanted to say is in relation to your observation that it will bend you farther. I just love that phrasing. It will bend you farther than you ever thought possible in the novel before everything starts going crazy. Karis has a scene where he's in prayer and he asks God for a sign. Oh, wow. He asks God for something. 
something to to allow him to see that this is all real. Well, here's what else is profound about the novel is in the novel that exchange with Father Dyer that the that the mother has right. towards the end. It's a bit longer in the novel, to which the mother basically says, "I don't know if I still believe in God. I I, I sure believe in the devil, but I, I I don't quite know yet if I believe in God." But then she says something that, good Lord, I get almost emotional saying. She says as she's getting into the car, she turns to Father Dyer and she says, did I hear you correctly that you said Father Karras was having trouble with his faith? And Father Dyer nods and she says, I don't believe it. I've never seen such faith in all my life. Wow. And it's it's incredible. It's really incredible to look at this story. And we have in this world... This is what I was this is what I was going to articulate a moment ago. We have in this world around us opportunities at every turn to confront evil in a variety of ways. Sure. You can choose to do it by force, you can choose to to legislate it, you can choose to do whatever you you think is going to control and combat evil. But the Christ-like example that we have is offering up yourself and offering up laying down your life categorically undermines the power that evil has on on any hold. And the scripture verse that I wrote down, which you know how hard it is to pick a scripture verse for my favorite film of all time, but the scripture verse that I had, and I think it's totally appropriate, is James chapter 4 and verse 7, which says very simply, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And what does resistance look like? Submitting yourselves therefore to God. Laying down your life. That's what ultimate resistance to evil, to the problem of evil, looks like. And I believe deeply that that will continually and forever undermine the power that evil holds on a personal level and on a public level. And I have never seen it more beautifully articulated than in my favorite film of all time, The Exorcist. Well, and it's interesting, too. Like, uh, I know that would have been a great sign-off for you, and I'm going to disrupt it totally by throwing one more thought at you. But, you know, talking about the template of Christ, like... I think there's such a danger, but such a present danger everywhere in, in, in modern faith that says, well, well, Christ died for me, so I'm good. You know, like, mm. like, right, right. Like, oh, this perception that the crucifixion of Christ was, hear me, you know, th- there's, there's all sorts of conversations that could stem off of what I'm trying to make a very simple statement. Um, I'm not trying to debunk or, or unpack atonement theology per se. What I am trying to say is... I think I know where you're going. Yeah. You don't... Because Christ died doesn't mean you get to wash your hands of discomfort. Right. And... Well, he told you to take up your cross right, too. Right. That's what I'm saying. And I think that... Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think we like to pretend that's like, well, that's euphemistically and, and um, mm. or, or, you know, um, just sort of figuratively speaking. But... Uh, you know, it's, it, you almost have this image of Christ on the cross saying, okay, my love now come on up. Yes. You know? And, and mm-hmm. I don't, I yeah. don't actually hear me listeners. <laughs> I don't actually believe that literally Christ is calling all of us to a physical death in every way and every day. That's not what I'm trying to say. Right. I am saying right. our, our resistance and opposition to discomfort sometimes is perilously at odds with what literally and actually is in scripture and is the spirit of the text and is the life of Christ that says to resist discomfort is to embrace the devil. Hey, there you go. That's a good, that's a a good exorcist moment for you. Yes. There you go, man. Um, That's a lot. 
Huh. Well, listeners, we hope that uh, you have enjoyed this conversation about... Uh, I, I, I certainly have, but... Let's face it. I enjoy any conversation about this movie. Um, I thought you were going to say you enjoy any conversation with me, but you know, whatever. I do enjoy any conversation (laughs) with you. I do. Um, but, uh, listeners, you know, we, we hope that you've gleaned something of value from, from what we've, from what we've been discussing here. And, uh, as we always say, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. Um, The Exorcist is a film that has been around for a long time. Um, It is uh, approaching its, I think, uh, 45th anniversary, but uh, it is something that it still holds a tremendous amount of power even today, and we know you have thoughts about them if you've seen the film. So we would love to hear those thoughts. You can reach out to us in a variety of different ways. You can uh, reach out to us by Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also follow us on, or you can like us on Facebook. Uh, there's a link to that through the Twitter. You can also uh, go to morethanonelesson.com to comment on the individual post for this episode. And you can also reach out to us by email, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, all one word. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? At the Nathan Rouse. And, uh, so yes, anything that you would have to say about the exorcist, I would personally find interesting and I'm sure Nathan would as well, but, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts on this and many, many other things. But, uh, we also just want to say rest in peace, William Peter Blatty. I'm sure that, uh, one of my favorite things about him, uh, was he had a phrase that, uh, if there were demons, then there were probably angels too, to which I would just say, amen. So, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this and thank you for bearing with us a little longer than we normally go. Uh, check out social media to see where we're going to be going next. And Nathan, thank you so much for having this extended conversation with me. I appreciate it as always. You're welcome, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. See you then, guys.